Hello, hello, hello. Good afternoon. Hi, Germantown. Hello, hello. Uh, I am Stephanie here with Lois. Uh, we are the Everyday Feminist coming to you live on G-Town Radio or Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM WGGTLP. <laughs> This is how I'm feeling today, <laughs> locally and elsewhere and everywhere else on the globe hey. at gtownradio.com. Hi, Lois. Hi. Hi. We haven't been here in a while. I know. We've been busy, huh? Yeah. Well, it was like end of summer madness, then back to school madness and Labor Day madness and all mm-hmm. of that. And so finally we're back, which is awesome. Oh, it feels good. It does feel awesome. Yeah. Look, I'm repeating myself already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll we'll get into it. I'm a little bit on the brain dead side today. I'm just like sleepy. Yeah, you know, I think it's like, it's also very rainy and dreary, and that's just kind of the nature of today. I think some of it's the rain. (laughs) We'll see how the show goes. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it, (laughs) Lois. Because there is like the rain, and then there's just the basic lack of sleep. Yeah. You know, like the insomnia bug sometimes gets me, and then I get really kind of sleepy. Yeah. And somewhat cranky. But yeah. I'm going to push through. Yeah. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the power of positive thinking. The power of positive thinking. <laughs> I've actually been here all day because the amazing station that G-Town Radio is, is letting me record my audiobook here. So I've been in the studio all day and I started reading it, obviously, to myself into the little microphones that go into the computer that hopefully that everybody will maybe want to listen to later. But I was reading a chapter from the book and it reminded me that this was something I really wanted wanted to talk to you about, Stephanie, was this idea of American individualism and how it affects the American home. Yeah. Well, maybe before we get into that, can you just tell the listeners what the book is that you're referring to? This is a book that Lois wrote. And so not to be all self-promo or anything, but just to at least reference Your book. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, so I wrote a book called Confessions of a Cleaning Lady, and I put it out last April. So it's been out there for a few months now. And I wrote it after writing for Grid Magazine for about three years, which is a local Philadelphia sustainable business magazine. So they they hosted a column, a Dear Lois column of mine, and I took the Dear Lois columns, which were all about feminism and domesticity and home and the way that we relate to home in this world through a feminist lens. I took those articles and then I kind of morphed it into a book, but also took some of my old radio show voicing from my old show, Confessions of a Cleaning Lady, and adapted it into a book with a little bit of how-to mixed in at the end. Yeah, and if someone wanted to read your book, how would they find it? Oh, they just go on my website, voltanaturals.com. Okay, and you can buy it there. Yeah, and then hopefully I'll be able to upload the audio file so they can get the audio book there as well. Well, that's awesome. So you were here all day, what might look like talking to yourself or reading to yourself, but really you were reading to your future audience. Oh, I love you. Yes, yes. Hello, future (laughs) audience. So you were reading, you were reading your book and it got you thinking about some of the stuff that you wrote. Yeah, it's kind of funny how when you revisit things and you kind of, it comes back to you and then it kind of speaks to you in a different way. Yeah, I totally get that. And I love your book. I think your book is like a really cool read. It's like, it's not so long that it's overwhelming and it's not so short that it doesn't say anything. (laughs) It's like just right. Yeah, thanks. And this, there's one chapter in particular 
I wrote right after the Capitol riot. Oh, the January 6th riots? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really got me thinking about this, the parallel between this attitude of I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want to, and how that attitude can be used in the home, particularly if you're somebody who doesn't clean up after themselves. I can leave my socks wherever I want. Don't tell me what to do. I want to do whatever I want, how I want, and just let me do things that I want when I want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Sounds very toddler. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sounds very, you know, it sounds very, um, yes, juvenile. But then how that attitude is also kind of translated onto the way that that white supremacist mob stormed the Capitol. I can do this. I want to do this. I'm going to do it what I want, how I want, and not have any regard to the symbolic home of our democracy. Yes. I doubt that the mob was even considering the humanity of the people, probably mostly people of color or women who were cleaning up the feces, blood, broken glass, It's like their point was way more important than humanity. Yeah, this was a a chapter in your book that I totally loved. And I really liked that that part in particular, the selfishness of the, the mob, the sort of like complete lack of taking any perspective of anyone else but themselves, right? I want to do this. This is my mission. But when you when you kind of brought in the fact that there was no regard for who would clean up the mess they made. That just seemed to kind of sum it all up. It's sort of like the mess that's left is almost like the barometer of the selfishness of the people making the mess, right? When you walk in and you see this destroyed place, clearly the people who were destroying it weren't thinking about it ever being cleaned up. It's like they didn't care. They didn't care about this space. They didn't care about what the space will look like when this is all over. Right. So like it's as if time just stands still and all there is is this moment. There's no consequence. Right. Opposed to entering the Capitol, even if it's with a type of legislative change that I don't particularly care for, it can still be entered with reverence to what it is, Mm -hmm. with respect and trying to leave somewhere nicer because you were there trying to make a difference, trying to use your voice, being respectful of all parties involved. Right. Someone was talking to me recently about this Japanese concept, and I don't know the name of it at all. But the idea is that you leave a space better than how you found it. Mm-hmm. Like that this is sort of like a kind of morality, right, that the, the that culturally people agree to that you're always you're never going to leave a space worse than how you found it or even the same, but you want to improve it. And this is the opposite of that. Right. Right. It's just destruction. Right. With no with no consequence and no foresight. Well, thankfully, there has been some consequences. Well, but they weren't thinking of that in the moment. Right. That's my point, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So I can't help but think about like, how did we get there? I mean, obviously, there's violence and war and, you know, human ego and all these things that go into why people act the way they they do and why destruction happens right but i'm thinking more about the heart in it and how this is a reflection the capital riot was a reflection of the hearts of american people they wanted this to happen they wanted to overthrow democracy 
And like I do, I like to bring it back to the home. And it's like this, it's a similar attitude. I couldn't help but feel that kind of icky feeling in my body. Like it's a similar attitude to this rugged individualist pushing and forging my way ahead, no matter who gets hurt or who has, who has to be oppressed in the process. Right. This domineering domination. And it just feels, I can't, I just wanted to talk to you in particular, Stephanie, of how you felt about this kind of concept of American individualism. Because from the parallel that I at first took when I heard about the Capitol riot, it just got my wheel spinning about what is this attitude that particularly in the context we talk about a lot in the show between cisgendered couples, why is this attitude more prevalent in men than it is women, at least under the roof of the home? Why is the individualism more prevalent in men, essentially? Yeah. Like that there's something yeah. about like just taking of your perspective. Well, I guess it depends. I mean, thank you for wanting to talk to me about that. <laughs> I can talk about these things all the time, probably, unfortunately, for some of the people in my life. <laughs> but I guess it depends on how, how do you want to look at how these things developed? Because it's like you can look at like what would a developmental theorist say about the ways that boys are socialized versus girls? There's a theorist that I read in grad school, this woman, Nancy Chodoro, who wrote a book called, I believe, The Reproduction of Mothering, I think was her book. She wrote it in the late 70s. And she talks about gender identity or the development of the self in boys versus girls. And what she theorizes is that babies get attached to the mother, right? So all babies are attached to mom. Mom is the primary love object for most children. I mean, it's not only the mother, we know that, but generally, especially that's how it was being written about in the seventies. That's the idea. So girls get to stay identified with the mother as they grow and develop. They're bonded to mom. They can stay bonded to mom. Mom becomes their role model. Mom teaches them how to be a girl and then how to be a teenage girl and then how mm -hmm. to be a woman. And they just stay identified. So she thought that this made women's self-identity more of a communal one, that it was all about um, remaining connected and related. Mm. On the other hand, boys, she proposed, have to separate from the mother and re-identify with the father in order to start to develop their sense of selves. And so mm -hmm. she felt that that break created more of an individualistic attitude. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's way more than that. And there's like all of the ideas of patriarchy and all the other things that we talk about mm -hmm. in terms of how boys are socialized away from complex feelings and they're supposed to be mostly angry. I mean, depending on who they're being raised by. But she was talking about it in terms of like a kind of identification, like girls get to remain identified with their mothers, whereas boys have to stop being identified with the mother and turn and re-identify with the father. Mm. So she felt that that was kind of at the core, yeah. right? That, that So boys become more about like separateness and more individualistic, whereas girls remain communal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think it's also the way that girls, at least from when I read the Carol Gilligan book, oh, what's that called? Da, 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 How da. Patriarchy Persists? Or Not that one. Anyway, yeah, I can't think of in it a different time. voice, in a different voice. Yes. How yes. she talks about how even the toys that we give children, how we give little girls 
dolls and they play in a way where they're relating to how they play with each other by talking and communication while a boy might have a truck or a toy that's also a great toy to play with, but you're not really using that truck to have a voice. Right. It's not a human. It's not a human. So we're teaching girls at a very early age how to relate to each other. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's all of that. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I just think that the, that the way that we're raised, um, matters a lot. You know, I'm really concerned that I don't, this is where I can kind of like just free associate. So don't let me go too far Mm -hmm. down this rabbit hole, but I'm really concerned about children today who are being raised in front of screens. Yeah. Because if we're talking about like human relatedness is actually a necessity for our survival, like we actually are wired for it and we really need it. If there isn't enough human connection available or consistently enough available, I really worry for what's going to happen to us. Yeah. Because that just feels like then we're sort of like only in relation to ourselves where individualism becomes narcissism. Yeah. And then it gets really gross. Gosh, I've been studying psychology for 32 years. (laughs) It's like all I've ever done. And I've been practicing, like I started seeing patients in 1997. So I've been doing this work for a long time. And I can tell you, it's kind of fascinating to watch the evolution of psychopathology in a culture, Hmm. right? The issues that come into your office change over time. And the predominant, like America has always been a predominantly narcissistic society compared to other cultures. But I do think that narcissism is on the rise that it's becoming more extreme that it's becoming more primitive like what you're talking about with the january 6th riot that kind of individualism that is just destructive and doesn't care and isn't thinking ahead and isn't concerned about anyone else that's very it's like deeply immature developmentally this is not a complex it is and it's like you know i would say not to offend anybody but whatever. <laughs> like, If you participated in that, you should start to look in the mirror and think about your level of developmental maturity. And, and I'm saying primitive, not in a, I don't, that, that word probably is loaded and can be taken in a few ways, but I mean it in terms of like, sort of like underdeveloped, immature, mm-hmm. right? I don't really like the word primitive, actually. <laughs> yeah, like, it emotionally stunted as well. Yeah, that there's something about that, that it's like, I'm not, my mind isn't working in a way that is allowing me to think of others. And, you know, and then there's the whole idea of the mob mentality too, and social psychology. And, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people there who maybe outside of that moment might be capable of more, you know, of a more mature lifestyle. But in that moment, it's like this mass regression. And it's interesting because we were talking about for earlier today, how we were talking about, how humans in general need a sense of belonging for their, our development and for our survival, which is interesting that let's just take the mob that stormed the Capitol, how they found a sense of belonging in a very destructive way. Well, that's a good point. Right, right. It's sort of like it's as it's sort of like the relatedness maybe there is just to each other within the mob. That they are connected to each other, but they're not connected to anybody outside of the mob, right? Or they're connected to their leader. It's very sad. It is. 
You know, listen, I think that people who are slightly depressive tend to be therapists or psychologists or whatever, whatever your training is. And maybe being a therapist makes you more depressed. <laughs> I don't know which came first, but it, it like these, I think about these things probably way too much and it can get depressing when you start to really like look at like the ways that people coming to you have changed over time, the ways that the themes have evolved in our culture. And for me, when I look at where it is now, and this is no reflection on anybody that I'm working with privately, like in my practice, but just, it's sort of like even just the stories that they come in telling me about the people in their lives and the things they're up against. You just hear it more and more and more. The sense that people are having a harder and harder time finding ways of relating to each other. Like resonance feels like it's in shorter supply than it used to be. It's not like it's gone. Mm. But, you know, there's something of like, you know, I sort of feel like the screens turn us into zombies to a certain Mm -hmm. extent. And zombies are not very related beings. Do you think we also expect too much? For instance, (laughs) there's... There's no one that's going to understand what it's like to be me, to, to do all the things or have the point of context that I have. So because nobody will totally, fully understand me, it's almost like I, I well, this is not true. This is just a hypothetical because I don't believe this. But it's like if no one can really, truly understand me, I don't belong anywhere. But I don't, I don't know that that, I don't look at it that way. Because first of all, I think you're, you're correct. None of us can ever really, truly, deeply understand another person. It's like a life's work. For me to ever really get to know you could take a lifetime. Yeah. And I still wouldn't be there because people are that complex. Like we just are. So I don't think that the goal should be that you, that someone you like we it's it's an impossible goal to think that someone could ever fully understand you but relatedness is where you try or where you yeah. want to or where you're curious about what it's like to be someone else in whatever context yeah i even think a lot about how i don't hear people ask questions of each other as much anymore like i don't hear the tell me i mean i know that this is maybe a therapy line and so maybe i'm just tainted by my job but I don't hear people asking for more details or saying something like, and this isn't you, Lois, because you're very good at this, but saying something like, well, of course you're tired after the day you had, my gosh, and maybe imagining what it might have been like to have had, to have been you for a time. Right. Right. To really like practice putting yourself in someone else's shoes and saying it out loud. Like not just imagining it in your head and you don't actually speak the words, but sort of saying, yeah, well, of course you're tired, man. looks like you had a hard day. When someone does that, it's not only validating to the other person, it's just, it's like joining them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I had a moment last week where a family member of mine is, is quite sick and it was so hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that, that he was suffering what he is suffering. It, it was hard for me to even really process those feelings because I don't know what, it, what it's like to have a diagnosis like he has. But also just my heart, it's just my heart was there. And then I realized, well, that's, just, that's what I can give. Yes. <laughs> you know, 
And honestly, if, if I knew that there's people in my life that were giving me that heart too for when I'm going through things, that is a sense of relatedness that seems just fine. Right. That feels good. Right. Right. But it's almost like it's, it's not a chicken or the egg situation either. It's like just something that you do. Right. There, because there's something about like when a society becomes too individualistic, it becomes more and more isolated, like each individual, right? It's like if what I am is about me, I'm focused on me, my perspective, what gets me ahead. I'm not really think I'm, I'm, I'm interacting with you in terms of what you can get me instead of finding a way to kind of get to know you. You yeah. become an audience. I play my song at you. Mm-hmm. I'm not there with you. We're not mm-hmm. joined. That to me, and we were talking about this recently, I think on this show, that is some, ex- that is the makings of extreme loneliness. Yeah. But in a, in a sense that's really feels m- not even lonely, but beyond lonely, like isolating. Yeah. Like I can be in your presence, but I am not relating to you. Well, that's what I mean about like, do you th- do you think that some people ask too much? Depends what you mean by ask too much. Sometimes I have seen, I don't know if this is a huge trend or not, but I know that there are some people that have passed through my life that feel so lonely and isolated because no one understands them and no one could ever understand them. So they separate themselves and just feel the feelings of being an individual of who they are feeling misunderstood by the world but there's no real connection i guess is what you're saying like there's i guess i don't really know where i'm going well, with that this becomes, one i think that becomes kind of a slippery slope right because I, I was imagining a few different things when i was listening to you like mm-hmm. this idea of people asking too much like on the one hand to me i feel like as we become more narcissistic what that also means is that we become more relationally hungry Mm-hmm. or relationally starved, right? Someone, like, you know, one idea about the origins of narcissism is that it comes from, like, a depleted relatedness. Like, if I'm a narcissistic parent raising a child, I'm going to use that child to meet my needs. I am not available to relate to the child as they are as their own person. They are a function. They're serving a function for me and my depleted ego. Mm. So now I'm creating another depleted ego. Mm. Right. And so unless there's, you know, other people in that kid's life or a therapist later in life, like it's risky. You know, it's almost like narcissism can kind of run in families this way because one person who's depleted depletes the next person who depletes the next person. Right. So we're kind of it becomes like just this ongoing drain. Yeah. Right. With no one replenishing each other. So if when you're working with someone who has more of a narcissistic tendency, at least therapeutically, the idea is you do a lot of what we call mirroring. Mm -hmm. You just let you just kind of do what they didn't get. Essentially, a lot of listening, a lot of like reflecting back, a lot of saying what was said. And the idea is that eventually, at least the way I look at it is it starts to fill the well Mm-hmm. Right. So in a way that person is coming in asking too much because, but, but it's also because there's that big of a need. Yeah. Yeah. I, yes. Is that yeah. what you're, that's yeah. what I, that's what I'm kind of trying to allude at. You said it so much better. Well, I don't know. 
I mean, the other thing you were talking about sounds like what happens when, when a child's being raised, if there's no one to relate to, or if you have this sense of isolation in the world and then you just kind of bond with yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that gets very tricky. Um, and that, that kind of psychology under certain circumstances can lead to a more kind of sociopathic character development. Yeah. Right. It's like, because there's no one to relate to. So I just relate to my own power. Like, and then your own individual power becomes almost like your attachment figure. And that's what you're loyal to. That's what starts to feel good. Yeah. And that, you know, is certainly very problematic because that's completely anti-relational. Yes. Right. It's really only me and myself. And I don't care about others. It's just like I get to enjoy my power over others more so than trying to relate to them. Listen, all of these things, if you ask me, come from pain. Mm -hmm. Like there's a feeling that, I don't know, I guess like as a psychologist, I often operate from the stance of like, what shape did your pain take? Right. How did, how, like in terms of like whatever symptoms someone might show up with, the symptoms themselves reflect often some kind of hurt in that area. And it's sort of like, however you coped with pain at the developmental level that you, that you were at when whatever happened, happened, that starts to shape you. Yeah. Right. And so then, you know, in my job, we kind of go back to that. We try to find it and see if we can like heal the pain Yeah. and then things can kind of like it won't ever be completely gone depending on what it is, but you can really come to know it and understand it and learn to use it and not be scared of it. Mm-hmm. And things get way, way, way better and, and you, symptoms go away. And you use it as a bridge to relate to other Absolutely. people. Like I was saying in our last episode, I think we were talking about that, you know, the ways that pain can essentially connect us. I mean, that's what Thich Nhat Hanh said, you know, the Buddhist philosopher, like he, I heard an interview with him where he said, I wouldn't want to live in a world without suffering, which sounds kind of atrocious. Like what really you wouldn't want to live in a world without suffering. And he, his whole take was no, because suffering is what brings us together. We relate, right? If you're, if I have felt pain and I see you feeling pain, I can connect to you. Right. And, and the fact of having suffered helps me heal your suffering. Mm Mm-hmm. So he really felt it was a, a very important sort of bonding tool. Yeah, I love that. And it, it reminds me of something that my therapist used to say to me when I was really going through a hard time. She'd always remind me, however great the suffering that I felt in the moment was, to remember that there's always the flip side of it, that the deeper the suffering, the deeper the joy And if I can hold that in tandem, then the joy that I can experience can be healing as I work my way out. And knowing that I am the pendulum swings to as far as far to the other side as the pain and suffering was. And what that does is kind of brought me to a place and my surroundings and the people around me too. You know, I had either negative influences in my life or, you know, people that I was surrounding myself when I was suffering. But those, there's a lot of the same people who were there who also saw out my joy. Right. Which created beautiful bonds in friendships. Right. And things like that. Well, the other thing that it sounds like you were doing at that time 
and that I hope people would get out of a good therapy is to really grieve whatever it is that hurt you. Because, mm-hmm. you know, people certainly say to me all the time, oh, you know what? Like, sure, I had it rough, but I got over it and I'm fine now. Oh, really? Like, how how did you do that all by yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, or maybe, oh, no, no, like I cried once and it's better. But that was a major problem. That was a really, really big loss. What do you mean you cried once and you got over it? Or some once someone hugged you and it was fine. Like, I call BS on that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not, it might seem as if that's true. We might wish it would be true. Because who really would want to go back and re-experience something horribly painful? Right. But if you have the courage to do it, if you have the strength to do it, it will be exactly like what you said, Lois. It's like you will expand your emotional range. And that expansion of your emotional range will make your relationships so much richer. Mm -hmm. You will be more available to others. You will be freer inside because you won't be spending all of this energy on unconscious defenses that are trying to protect you from the pain that's still living there. Mm -hmm. Totally. And that courage doesn't have to be all self-motivated or made, too. I think about surrounding myself with people who really went through things, too, that I could get their wisdom or their their take on something and just wanting to listen, learn, and grow. But because I had people in my life who really cared about my growth as well. Mm -hmm. So the courage kind of became... But yes, I agree. It takes a lot of courage, but it also wasn't as scary when I know that the people around me, that there's people who have gone through similar things or uh, that sense of relatedness. I mean, so important, right? It's like to know that there are strong people around you and those people got strong by doing this kind of a process, Mm -hmm. right? So you're not the first to do it. And if you can find other people that have been through hard things and can relate to you and aren't scared to relate to you right it's like we were talking about the last time if I have a feeling in myself that I can't really allow that I haven't really worked through or that I'm trying I'm defending against it because it hurts too much when you come to me with that feeling I have to get away from you Mm -hmm. right right in that moment I'm not going to be able to relate to you and you're going to feel very lonely in my presence Mm mm-hmm Versus if I've been through something that gave me a feeling that might be similar, then I'm much more open. I can just give you a hug and be like, I know, God, it hurts sometimes. It's going to get better. And even if we don't know what somebody has gone through, you can still give a hug and be like, I don't know what you're going through, but can you tell me more? Right. Right. Or even I can imagine what you're going through and it stinks. Yeah. And you're going to get through it. And, you know, to use a Lois Volta line, you're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. To let people know that, you know, things might hurt, but they're handling it. Yeah. You got and it. And they're getting yeah. through it. And not in a way that's abandoning. That's like, okay, well, good luck with that. It's It's not dismissive, but it's mm-hmm. very meant to be supportive and encouraging and especially when it's accurate. Yeah. There's something that I think about often when I'm having a disagreement with my children. I like to remind them that I'm a human too, because I think just developmentally as teenagers, it's very easy to be in your own world or think that you're the center of the universe. And honestly, developmentally, that's just where people are. Yep. Everybody kind of has that moment and those experiences that kind of, connect them to something bigger than they are. 
my youngest daughter and I got in a little argument yesterday because I asked for something that I couldn't do alone. And my oldest daughter was babysitting and my middle daughter has a busted foot. So I know, so sad. (laughs) She's healing. She's bouncing back. But I needed help with it. I couldn't do it by myself. And she kind of blew me off a little bit. She's like, well, I got homework. I got this. I got that. Maybe if I have time. (laughs) (laughs) I am familiar with this conversation. (laughs) And I was, I got, I got upset by that. I got upset by that. Not because she had homework, not because I wasn't going to get what I wanted. I got upset at her unhelpfulness. Or the attitude behind somebody in need, somebody needing to do something with somebody else and her blowing that off. So we had a little like mom daughter spat and then we both cooled down and then later we were able to talk about it. And I was able to tell her how I felt dismissed or when I'm in need, you know, I don't ask for help that often besides the normal chores or things like that, which I don't consider help. I think that that is a communal thing. But from me as her mom and her being my daughter, I was asking her a personal favor and I got blown off. And how that was hurtful because I'm a human being who wants to do everything for her to make sure she feels confident about getting her homework done and feels good about being... staying on top of school and all the things that she wants to do I want to support her in that and she was able to express to me that when we are having an argument and when I'm upset with her how it makes her feel and how it the ways that it feels like it hurts and she was able to describe to me her emotional experience through it I got a lens to her feelings and she was able to understand where I was coming from And the rest of the night played out quite beautifully. She did her homework and I made her some dinner and brought her some tea and made sure that she got the support she needed because I needed to show her by example. And as soon as she was done, she came upstairs and offered her help to me. It meant so much to me because she was then ready to help. And we were able to talk about, well, next time this happens, would you be able to say to me, mom, I'm really stressed out about all these things that I need to do. I want to help you. Can you give me a little bit and I'll be there soon? Like that's, that's like a more mature way of handling the situation. And maybe I shouldn't have expected a 14 year old to be able to right off the bat, be able to do that. So I could recognize where maybe I was a little too hard on her in the beginning. Yeah. But it's one of those moments that's so useful. I mean, that's parenting, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, there's a sense of, you know, she gets to push back against something, which is sort of the job of teenagers, fun Mm -hmm. times when you're their parent, but they need something to push against. Yeah. Right. So she took the opportunity to push, right. But then you got to use it to have, to have the rift and then have the repair. Right. And then she sort of like grows from that. And the two of you speak a new language together now. Yes. But I admit that I was hurt. I felt dismissed. I felt like I felt it made me feel lonely. It made me feel like there's things that I can't do that I need help with that here I am 
taking care of these beautiful people. And the moment I ask for help, they're not there. Yeah. But that's not really what was happening. You know, it's like I didn't have to take all that on and put that on her. But it's useful that if you were feeling it, that you could say it. Right. And yeah. she could hear it. Yeah. Like that, you know, that's like when you were saying I'm a human too, which is almost like if you bring back to the topic of individualism, that's you being a person. That is you ha- being a person, being an individual and having an experience, but sharing it in a communal way. Right. So that it's not you being only about you to the neglect of others or to not caring about others. It's you having your feelings as you do and using it and communicating it. And she was open to hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. And then later on, she came down and we just hugged for a long time. And it was really nice. There's a part of me that wants to go, oh, yeah, that happens with me and my sons all the time. And then I want to do like a diabolical laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that happens. They just come down and tell me all their feelings. And then we just hug it out and we have tea. It's great. There's a lot of emotions in my house. I mean, I'll bet. There's a lot. Three teenage girls. It's a lot of feelings. It's a lot of feelings. And, and there might me. be. There might be in my house too, but for some reason, you know, and I like to think it's not because I socialized my sons to be silent. I mean, some of it I do think is developmental and I do think there are some probably biological gender differences just mm-hmm. because, you know, boys have one hormone to girls four. you know, yeah. it's like there are differences. Yeah. But it feels like there's just a developmental phase with boys of silence, which really could even just be related to the fact of your voice changing. Totally. You know, like lots of stuff is going on physiologically, physiologically. And girls talk about stuff a little bit more, right? For yeah. instance, puberty and periods and bodies changing seems like something that girls talk amongst themselves maybe more than boys do. I don't know if that's I don't true because I'm not a boy. My boys don't tell boy. me what they talk about amongst themselves. Yeah. <laughs> if they talk about these things, <laughs> I, I would love to know. Yeah. I would love to know. But I like your example. I think that it there's just a lot of humanity in that. And then thinking about this idea of American individualism, like for her, I want her to feel free to be able to express herself, to be able to be herself to know who she is and to pursue that and to feel like she is important and can do so much, right? If she keeps following the direction that feels like her moral compass is pointing her to with a heart bent towards love, that's the type of person I want to raise. But without a tether to the bigger humanity in who we are, humankind, family, community, who we are as people... Without that, it's almost like I would slingshot her into the a, a world of wolves. Right, right. And that to me is scary, <laughs> you know? So I can see how that there's this like other swing, like without teaching our children a sense of relatedness, it's really American individualism. You're going to get eaten up by the capitalist machine. Right. I mean, I guess the other thing I'm thinking as I'm listening to you is that we're a really traumatized society. And this is where it gets a little bit dark. I'm sorry, guys. But we are. We're a traumatized society, and we're getting more and more traumatized 
all the time mm-hmm. and we're getting really acclimated. Like we, one horrible trauma comes and then we get 50 more just like it and we get, we get numb to it. Mm-hmm. And then the next wave comes. And so we've all kind of got this collective trauma. I mean, just like if you've watched the news, you could be pretty traumatized if you're still kind of like, you know, someone with like an open heart and a lot of sensitivity and you hear a lot of the things that are going on in our country. Let, let's just take with guns, like, which is only one thing forget the natural disasters and all of the other stuff and the racism, but just guns, it's really, really traumatic. And so if you are raised in a way that does not have a lot of social support around you, you're taking in all of this and maybe, you know, maybe your parents are traumatized, maybe they're unavailable, maybe they have a narcissistic character type of their own. The child is getting, is developing with a depleted sense of self. So their version of individualism that they're going to have is going to look very, very different from a child who's being raised with a full sense of self, with a like a lot of fulfillment, where they have mattered, they've been reflected, they've been seen accurately. I mean, to see a child accurately with, you know, for better or worse, good and bad, like I know you, I know your strengths, I know your weaknesses, all of that helps that kid really develop a sense of themselves in reality. A child who's, you know, not interacted with or interacted with in only one way, you're only bad or you're all good. That's not true. No one is all bad and all or all good. We're all com- mm-hmm. complicated. Those kinds of practices when if a kid is going is raised in that kind of an environment, it's going to create something very different. Mm-hmm. Right. It's sort of like you're they're going to have a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. And so it's like when you've got a society that's being traumatized over and over and over again, and nobody's looking out for the kids and nobody's thinking about the impact of early attachment on the society that we create, this is not good. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many psychologists have tried and tried and tried and tried to talk to legislators about these things. It's like, what kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of citizenry do you want to have? Because if you can support parents as they're raising their children so that they're less depleted and they have more to offer, you're going to have kids that are functioning better. They're going to become productive, creative members of society who are flexible thinkers and problem solvers and able to relate. They'll be paying more taxes. You won't have to pay as much for incarceration. <laughs> like, right? There won't be as many problems. You won't have as much remediation to do. But the legislators don't want to hear it. And so it just kind of keeps going, right? It's like if we could just stop, even if we just could stop the guns, just that would be such a big deal. When you were talking, I couldn't help but think about the strategy tactic to oppress, divide, and conquer. So if you isolate someone and then, or isolate a community or a person or just a group Mm -hmm. of people... Mm -hmm and make them feel oppressed, then you can divide them through all different types of tactics. In this situation that we're talking about childhood development, we could even say screens, Mm -hmm. you know, dividing, and then you can really have your way. It's, we are living in an authoritarian climate that it's like, okay, well, who, who is it? Who's making it? Who's doing it? Well, the way that we invest in companies in corporate structures in the way that we just let these things happen to us all the time it's a reflection of truly what i don't know it's like what we're willing to put up with says a lot about our self-respect yeah yeah 
And also this country doesn't have a shared moral code, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have a unified sense of the world we want to live in. Right. People are really divided. And so when my morality doesn't agree with your morality, then we've got problems because we're not working toward the same end. And what Mm -hmm. you're talking about in terms of sort of like the divide and conquer piece or creating people, it's like if each person is existing in their own silo, it's sort of like what's on the horizon isn't pretty. Sometimes I really think that when policymakers don't listen to psychologists about child development and what's needed, what elements create a healthy person, what kids really need, when they don't listen to that and they know the consequences of not listening to that because we've told them, it really makes me think that's because maybe they have stock in prisons. Mm. Right. So it's almost like, no, no, no. We need people that actually aren't functioning well. We need some broken people. We need people who will cope with their pain by committing a crime. So then we can incarcerate them and then we can charge them $50 for every phone call they make yeah. and pay them 30 cents an hour to manu- make things like, you know, be working as a manufacturer or working for a manufacturer. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And then the cycle continues. Then there's a whole, there's neighborhoods, there's groups of people that are marginalized and oppressed to keep them in the place that they keep them to keep things moving forward. I mean, it just keeps, it just really feels like that's how people who have a lot of power can maintain it. I would really hope that people would really decide that they don't want to live in a world like that. You know, you would hope that the leaders in our world would not be interested in having people not feel good. <laughs> yeah, but then there's also like if you speak up against it, what do you have to lose? Because that's the other thing. It's like, okay, with our voices, with our individual voices, even thinking about, let's talk about the flip side of individualism. You don't want to be in a in an oppressed group or you don't want a group to be oppressed or you just want to be able to have your own autonomy and you speak truth to power, there's consequence most times. And there's something that's going to be lost. Even if there's a dynamic within the household where you have one person who's dictating the relationship or um, you might feel like what you have to lose if you speak up is camaraderie or love or empathy or friendship or respect. Right. And that stuff drives me crazy when really if we take the time to listen, to understand, foster relationships, then we could create something far bigger and more beautiful together. Yeah. Yeah. I just found this little excerpt in this book that I just got. This book is called Us by um, Terrence Real, who I guess is a, a pretty well-established family therapist and public speaker. I had never, I had never read him before. There are some chat or some uh, paragraphs in this book that I really like. And so this is one of them. Tell me if this relates to Mm -hmm. kind of what we're talking about. So he just calls this, you know, the relational brain. Interpersonal neurobiology is the study of how our brains and central nervous system form through our relationships in childhood and how relationships impact our neurobiology as intimate adults. What we're finding out is that the mind exists in a social context. Partners in close relationships co-regulate each other's nervous systems cortisol, the stress hormone levels, and immune responsiveness. Secure relationships lead to increased immunity and less disease to say nothing of lower scores in depression, anxiety, and higher reported general well-being. Insecure relationships stress you out and can make you ill. Yeah. 
right? So it's, it's, we need this. We need yeah. relatedness. We yeah. need each other. This is where I get kind of like the, the whole like love yourself before you love other people thing gets messy to me because taken too far, it feels like it becomes very individualistic. Mm -hmm. And I also don't believe that, that loving it, like love, self-love cannot originate within the self. Mm -hmm. It has to come in from the outside. When you're little, someone's got to nourish you mm -hmm. so that it can lay the groundwork for you to do that later. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's sort of like, like, you know, this author is saying we have relational brains. We are wired for connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're not loving yourself, though, how good is your love that you're giving to your neighbor? Yeah, which is true. I'm just saying it can't start with that. Yeah, like, there is a sense that when I'm, I, I feel like I see people a lot talk about, you know, you have to love yourself before you can love anyone else. And I would say someone has to love you before you can love yourself before you can love anyone else. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, it does not like it. That's like phase two. Yeah. You know, it's like, you have to have taken it in. It's like, you know, you know, like the, I don't know if you ever read the research on like orphans in Romania that were never held who developed mm -hmm. failure to thrive. It's really, like these are, I think it was like Renee Spitz or some other psychologist in the 40s started to study these orphans that were not held. Mm -hmm. And they they couldn't make it. They could be fed and everything, but if they weren't nur nurtured, they're not going to survive. They couldn't love themselves out of it, right? It's like you've got to have the nurturance. Like we need it. We have to be touched. You know, yeah. there's all kinds of studies about that. The rhesus monkey studies where there was a, I think it was John Bowlby took baby monkeys, had them decide, essentially, he gave them two kind of false mother options. One was a really fuzzy terry cloth mother. You know, these, these are like fake monkeys <laughs> that mm -hmm. he made like monkey dolls. One was soft and only soft. And, and that monkey represented contact comfort mm -hmm. for the baby. And the other one was a wire monkey that had a bottle, mm -hmm. like a bottle with a nipple that the baby could feed from. Yeah. And he wanted to see what's more important, the food or the nurturance. Yeah. And what happened was the baby monkeys would climb up on the terry cloth mom, quote unquote mm -hmm. mom, hold on to it and reach way over and suck the bottle from the other mom. Oh. They had to have both, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't just, you know, it's like obviously you need like nourishment, like nutrition to survive, but also they really needed the soft comfort to thrive. Yeah. Okay. I want to know what you think about this. I know we're running out of time. So there's this crib that's like this high tech crib that can detect if a child is crying and slowly start to bounce it. And it can kind of get to know the baby like an AI crib. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, we're in for it. <laughs> like, the, you know, I get it. If I can understand why an exhausted parent would want a crib that could lull the baby back to sleep. Yeah. So that the parent could sleep. Me too. But babies need to be held. Yeah. They, I mean... So I guess if you have a crib like that, I guess if you're picking up the baby every other time, maybe that maybe that's enough. 
But again, it's like kids in front of screens instead of being held. Like this, this stuff is not, it's not going to bode well for the future of human relatedness. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah. And, you know, the epidemic of loneliness is going to get bigger and bigger. And then people are going to be like, I just don't know why I'm so lonely. Why are people so lonely? And then they'll come up with all kinds of theories that to me are a lot of BS Mm -hmm. because it all comes back to this. Yeah. Right. It's like nurture the babies. Like, Right. It's like take care of the parents so they can take care of the child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because we want people like you were saying, like your daughter, you want people to have a solid sense of self so they know themselves and they can function as a strong person in the world. But the all about me mentality is problematic. And also we can't just do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. No. Because that rips us apart even more. It's part of that division idea. Right. Like relationships require care. You know, you don't go into a relationship with someone you care about and just say whatever comes to mind Mm -hmm. without any kind of filter. Yeah. You think about who you're talking to and you say things in a way they can hear it and you take into account their sensitivities. Exactly. Right. It's it's just basic care. Kind care empathy nurturance awareness yes right and you can do all of that from a position of being a strong person inside i love that so it takes this kind of idea of the strengths of individualism and even american individualism but there's a lot of great ways that we've pushed our society forward by being uh, outside of the box thinkers and really pushing the envelope of who we are and what we can do and how we can do it, maybe breaking free of molds that weren't serving us. But if we keep the relatedness aspect through empathy to other human beings, we can go so much further. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, we could do a whole other show on empathy, Mm. right? How do we build empathy? How do we keep empathy alive? Reading fiction increases empathy. Love that. It is problematic that people are not reading books. Mm. It is problematic that there's only short little clips of videos or whatever, and that's taking up all of our attention yeah. and our attention's getting all yeah. fragmented and then everyone feels, you know, scattered. Right. Right. It's like we need to read books. We need fiction. We need libraries. We need all of that stuff. It's really, really good yeah. for us so yeah. that we can continue to relate to each other. That's right. Because we're not alone in the world. Yeah. We don't, or it can feel like you're alone in the world, but you don't have to be. No. No. And sometimes it is, though, as an adult, it's about maybe shifting, shifting the mindset into, yes, I know I'm operating out of a lack thereof, or I feel like I'm starving for attention or relatedness. But in this moment that I'm in right now, what do I have to give? Because it's within our giving, we're able to be more connected as well. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a thought that I've had for a long time. Like if you think about it, if you think about what we're talking about is something, um, that that's been referred to as relational poverty, right? It's like, what happens when you can come from like all the money in the world, but if you don't have close relationships and you're relationally impoverished, that's problematic. Mm-hmm. It becomes much more of this individualistic kind of mindset over time. Yeah. But I really think that the cure for relational poverty is what I call emotional generosity. Yeah. 
which is exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Right. And that's where I was saying, you know, sometimes you just have to pour in the love. Like if you see somebody who's relationally impoverished, they may be so relationally impoverished that you've got to keep pouring it in and keep pouring it in. You know, we don't want you to be drained and you would hope that eventually they would fill up. And, you know, maybe some of that's my job as a therapist is to do all of that, which I do and I try. But the emotional generosity that we can give to people when we encounter them on the street just with a smile or being kind to the person next to you in line or the, the person serving you at a restaurant or a cafe, all of that stuff matters so much. Totally. Absolutely. Like we have to see each other. That's right. That's right. So I'm part of a Quaker community. For a while when I moved to Germantown, I really wanted to tap into like a group. I didn't really know how to do that. And I would go different places. And I was, it wasn't till I started volunteering that I felt like, oh, I can get connected. Or even the station, G-Town Radio. As soon as I started volunteering here, then I was able to connect with people like you, Stephanie. Or sometimes it's just, yeah, it's like what we have to give, but also... What else are we supposed to be doing yeah. as humans? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, let's like, it's not all about us and our time isn't worth all that much that we can't give back. And if our time is so valuable, what a beautiful thing to be able to give. Right, right. And it, it's, I think that these things, and it's almost like counterculture or it could be, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of like, could maybe it's an act of rebellion in some communities to volunteer yeah. and take care. Just do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I hope not. I hope yeah. not, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this got where you kind of wanted to go today. Oh, no, I th- I liked where we went. I saw, I like our walk in the woods. I feel like today was a walk in the woods. A walk in the woods with Lois and Stephanie. (laughs) Brilliant. A meandering walk, as it were, but a walk nonetheless. All right. Well, thanks for listening, Germantown and beyond. Germantown and beyond. So we will be back here, I believe, next Monday. So check us out. We are here on Mondays at four. We'll be back. And if you want to listen to any past episodes, you can find us online at www.theeverydayfeminist.com. All of our shows are linked there. Feel free to share it. Tell your friend to tell a friend. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.